Can you see me or not? I can't see you, no. Um, what the hell's going on here then? My partner's laughing at me. Your, your video oh. is there, but you're uh, you know, just, in a dark box at the moment. I know, I don't understand. Hello, hello. Timbo. Hello, hello, hello. Who's in the dark box? Uh, I'm um, in the young James. I'm in the pitch black. I've got a new computer and I'm not sure what's going on. I thought you I'd get your money back, James. <laughs> it's a work one, unfortunately. Uh, hey, yay! look at that. Ah, success. Yay, 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 yay. Yay. Hello. Brilliant. Hello, James. Hello. Hey, I have a little face. <laughs> I had a lens cover over my camera. <laughs> oh, right. I don't often everybody? come with a lens cover. No. Well, that was a shock to me, to be honest. It's very, it's invisible. You can't see. Unbelievable. Ah. Okie dokie. Shall we start after me faffing about? And I won't interrupt you this time. Oh, come <laughs> on. We've got to be consistent. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the BBC Light programme. Tony Hancock Appreciation Society presents, ooh, very nearly an armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. Hello and welcome to Very Nearly an Armful, brought to you by the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. On the show, we'll be discussing Tony's famous series, Hancock's Half Hour. We'll discuss the show, its production and what we liked about it. We race and review the episode and just generally get our geek on about vintage comedy. We're your hosts. I'm James Griffith. I'm Martin Gibbons. I'm John Street. And I'm Tim Elms. We're spread across the south of the UK in a line from Wiltshire to Essex via Kent. And our members are spread all over the world. We have members as far afield as Thailand and Israel. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the most famous pastiche of a Henry Fonda movie, the Hancock's Half Hour episode of Twelve Angry Men, from the sublime fifth TV series which was the first television series that exists in its entirety. Uh, This was first shown at 8.30pm on Friday the 16th of October 1959. But first of all, chaps, how have you all been since our Christmas break? Very well, thank you, James. Yes, yeah. Not too shabby. Yeah, it's all been good, thank you. Excellent. Had a few things to watch on TV over the Mm. period. When was it? Back in December, you probably remember that we had a treat in that Gorton Simpson's impasse was repeated on BBC Four. Indeed. The first time since first shown, I think, in 1963. So uh, that that was really enjoyed watching that. I don't think I watched it all, all the way through before. Uh, Bernard Cribbins and uh, Leslie Phillips in it, of course. And um, a very young Youther Joyce makes an appearance. But it's a, it's a terrific script. It's a typical... Gorton and Simpson script out of nothing when two drivers taking their cars down a country lane in opposite directions come across each other and neither of them will give way to the other one. <laughs> now, you've got something to say, have you? Yes, I have. Now, look, <laughs> let's be sensible about this. I'm being perfectly sensible. It'd be so much easier for you to back up your car than it would be for me to back up mine. How do you work that one out? Well, your car is smaller than mine. It'd be easier to back up a small car in a narrow lane like this. Well, then that's your fault, isn't it? You've got no right coming up a lane like this in a dirty great big car that size. <laughs> I'm perfectly entitled to take my car anywhere I choose. You're a road hog, that's what you are. You want all the road, don't you? I've met blokes like you before. You think because you've got a great big Rolls Royce, you own the road. Everybody else has got to drive up into the bushes to let you get past, haven't they? Well, those days are finished, mate. We all pay the same now, £15 a year. <laughs> and it, it, it just goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. But it's, it's, yeah. it's a brilliant script. It's very funny. And, and Cribbins and uh, 
Phillips do it exceedingly well. It's very good, very good half-hour comedy. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's one of the one of the best of the, the comedy playhouse scripts that they wrote. It's, it's just absolutely timeless. And in fact, I think Paul Merton did a remake of that. He did, yes. In his series later on. Mm. Um, and then there was another remake on, um, the, the, there was a Gordon and Simpson show on the radio, which there was a, another audio remake of it for that as well. And so it's certainly yeah. one that's, that's been popular for, you know, with remakes and that over the years. Now it's a great show. The most oft-repeated one, because there's a, a, a section in the film, The Seven Deadly Sins, which is also a shortened version of that particular script. So it's the most, the one that Galton Simpson seemed to go back to most often. And I think they got the idea from um, a newspaper article. Um, who is the chap who used to be in uh, Star Bill with Tony? Um, Graham Stark. Graham Stark, Graham Stark saw this newspaper article and showed it to them. And they, uh, and That's they were right, like, oh, yeah. perfect, yeah. that'll be an excellent script. So. And and it was one of those occasions when they were stuck for knowing what to write about. You know, mm. they had these moments when they often went days or weeks trying to think of a plot for a comedy, and then Graham Stark came in and, and showed them this cut-in, and that was it. And they, I think they said they wrote it in record time. It just wrote itself. It was, you know, once once they got the idea, they just rattled it. Brilliant. Fr- brilliant fr- Friday afternoon, rattled it off, and then down the pub. Yeah. <laughs> <Can imagine. laughs> Yeah. If only we could do that, eh? If only we could do that. Mm. Yeah, so thinking of sort of the um, old things that have been on telly or found a lost episode of Morecambe and Wise, of course, over Christmas, mm. which was... Uh, yes. But uh, seen mm. snippets of it on the ITV documentary with, with the family because I think it had been found by, by Eric's son in, in the loft. Didn't realise until they you know got uh, got the film out and had a look that it was a it was a last episode from from one of their very early series. So that was that was really good to see. Fine. What is that on your lip? There's nothing on my lip. No, not a thing. Nothing. You, what's that on your top lip? Paul. Nothing. Oh, nothing. No, nothing at all. Nothing. You have grown a moustache. Haven't. No, I haven't. No. Oh, that's not a moustache. I'm mining it for a friend. You- <laughs> I read that it was found that the film was in black and white, but it had the colour coding on it. So the BBC had recolorized it before it was uh, before broadcast. So, you know, amazing that they can do that. That mm. was really worth a watch. Mm. Yes, it's called mm. Chroma Dot yeah. Recovery because across the picture screen there are little dots and that indicates that certain things were certain colours depending on their intensity and they use a bit of computer software to get the colour back and then adjust it. Was it originally broadcast in colour then? Yes. Yeah. So, so it was broadcast in colour, but the copy that was found was black and white. But because it was originally done in colour, they were able to colourise it. That's right. And they, yeah, they recover the colour from the, the film print because yeah. they, they're meant to use yeah. a special filter in front of the screen to wipe out the chroma dots, mm. but it wasn't applied at the time of tele-recording mm. um, in most cases. And uh, that's how they've done quite a lot of old Doctor Whos and I think a Dad's Army. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. been a few some other shows that they've recovered in a, the colour of in a similar way. It's quite, It's like magic, isn't it? Black magic. Mm. Yeah, because I think mm. um, I think one of the um, early Dad's Army, when they produced all the DVDs of all the se- of all the episodes on a series by series, I've got a feeling one of those is in black and white on the DVD, yeah. and subsequently they found a copy of the film with the, these dots on, so they the, the BBC were able oh, right. to, to recolorise, and they have rebroadcast it now in colour mm. um, as it was originally. Mm. Which which episode is that then? Oh, now you're asking me a technical question. I don't know the answer <laughs> to, and I can't remember. It's, uh, right. it's an early one. I think it's, it's. I think it's the one where Pike gets punched in the guts by someone, but he had a a bolt down the front of his tunic. But I, I can't quite remember. Uh, right. It's been a while since I've seen. It, but I've got a copy somewhere. Right. 
from when it was broadcast. Because I've got the DVD set of Dad's Army, but obviously it's got the black and white ones. It does on the DVD set, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. 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 interesting. Mm. And the other thing that I have started watching, and I know you'll all throw up your hands in horror when I say this to you, but I've never really watched One Foot in the Grave right the way through. So I've decided to start that at the beginning, and I've... I'm just about to start the second series, uh, which, of course, I think I think it's got Angus Deaton uh, comes in on second series. Yeah. So really enjoying it. It's nice to find you being so reasonable about it all, I must say. Reasonable, Mr. Meldrew? I mean, what is reasonable these days? To find outside one's house, I don't know, a pile of horse manure covered in fairy lights? Who's <laughs> to say? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I think by anyone's standards, it's not exactly Sleeping Beauty's castle, is it? How long has it been there now? 40 days and 40 nights? Three days and three nights, since you ask. Funny, it felt longer. And at least it's very clearly signposted, so people don't go accidentally sprawling headfirst into it. Oh, is that what they're there for? I thought it was some sort of jubilee celebration for the fertiliser industry. You enjoy it, yeah? We, we've been watching that. We did the same thing, yeah. I had the box set some years ago, but I think... I think I've said this before. Often I'm, I can't be bothered to get a DVD out the cupboard, and I end up watching things on BritBox. And uh, yeah. One Foot in the Grave, the complete series, the com- well, all the series are, are on BritBox. And we started watching it from the beginning, like like you did. It's a great series. It's slightly confusing though, because on BritBox they have missed out several Christmas specials. Mm, I noticed and that. And they oh, do right. they do actually tie the series, link the series quite nicely. Right. So it's right. slightly confusing. When you're, if you're mm. watching it in sync, because I, I rewatched it on BritBox as well. Of course, my brother oh, does a yeah. podcast about uh, One Foot in the Grave, One Foot in the Podcast. Indeed. And he in- interviewed David Renwick and Richard Wilson. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's a worth, worth a listen if anyone's uh, looking for mm. something else to listen to. Yeah, I'd noticed that because there's that one with Peter Cook in there, isn't there? One Foot in the Algarve. And I was like, I'm fairly yes. sure that's meant to be here somewhere. But it, it was obviously a, a special that they didn't mm. include in the BritBox deal. It's a shame, really, because it does link the stories. Talking about watching series from the start again, we've been watching Ever Decreasing Circles as well. That's a very underrated series. I might have mentioned this once before with Richard Bryars and Penelope Wilton, but that's a fantastic series. And uh, Richard Bryars is just so Hancock in that. And I think in one of the commentaries or somewhere I've I've heard him say that uh, he found himself sort of using Hancock as you know, like a, a basis for these sort of characters that he did. Yeah. Um, and particularly in that, this character of Martin Bryce, he certainly has his Hancock moments. He definitely has. Very funny script and mm. brilliant, brilliant performances. And his his reaction shots in, in it are, are, you know, on, on a par with Hancock's in Hancock's mm. half-hour. Brilliant actor, Richard Bryce. I'm talking about how Paul ever raised that money to buy Lawrence Treadwell's house. Oh, I see. So you've decided he's running a vice ring. I'm not saying runs, but there's something very shady about this. You can't raise a sort of money running a barber shop. Hairdressing salon. Anyway, he might have got a loan. It's none of our business. You won't say that when he turns that house into a strip club or a casino. Or Chinese opium den. Oh, look, do you think we could have some sanity in this yes, bedroom? Yes, do let's have some sanity. I used to watch a lot of that effort decreasing circles years ago. My mum absolutely loved it. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing it some time ago. Yeah, but it doesn't get repeated like the other one. No. Yeah. Well, we didn't really watch much new TV over Christmas because I found there wasn't really much new without being at all disrespectful mm. that, that really caught our eye. So we, we went out onto Prime and BritBox and started watching Jonathan Creek and things like that, which are quite quite entertaining. We did that, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? In, in, 
in the old days, we'd have had BBC or ITV on for the yeah. whole sort of time we're together. And, and in the days of video, I used to watch one side and video the other side and things like that. But uh, now you look down the TV show, do you think, nah, don't fancy that. <laughs> the only thing that's any good over Christmas, and it's other times as well, is is... Um, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with vintage comedy or Hancock. Is uh, Wurzel Gummidge? I actually, I actually love uh, the new Wurzel Gummidge. I think they're brilliant. I've not seen that still. Of course, there was a new yeah. version of that as well. Yeah, absolutely mm. brilliant. The new version, absolutely superb. Mackenzie Crook, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, mm. it's mm. great family entertainment. But I mean, I haven't. My kids are growing up now. But I mean, we, you know, it's just you can watch it as adults. You can watch it as a family, and it's just, it's just beautiful. I don't think I've ever watched it in any form. Mm, it is it is it's mm. great fun. It is great fun. See, I've been watching lots of things made in the 70s and 80s, like old Doctor Who from these uh, Blu-ray collectible upscale box sets that they've released, which uh, go for quite a pretty penny in the original packaging. I think uh, people buy them and resell them for an absolute fortune, and I'm not paying that much. But I, uh, I noticed... Um, I watched the uh, Peter Cushing Dalek Invasion of Earth, Earth movie over the uh, New Year's Eve, I think it was. I saw that at the cinema. And I noticed uh, young Eileen Way, who played Mavis in the reunion party in that. And then I was watching the TV show and I watched one called The Creature from the Pit, in which there's a creature in a pit. And uh, she's in that one as well. So it was uh, quite nice to see her little stern face in a few uh, old 70s broadcasts. Are you in charge here? I am. Thank you very much. You saved my life and I'm a doctor. What are those things? Wolf weeds. Weeds? Or plant weeds? Of course. Specially grown in the Lady Adastra's nurseries. Good Lord. If I were you, I'd introduce her to geraniums before it's too late. What are you doing in the place of death? Oh, just pottering around. I have this insatiable curiosity, you see. Why do you call it the place of death? Because anyone found here is automatically condemned to death. Ah. We're talking about Doctor Who. You, you, you'll be pleased, John, because I know you're a massive Doctor Who mm. fan. That I going back to BritBox again. They've got all the old Doctor Who's on there, and I think I said on here once before that I I'm old enough to remember the first ever episode of Doctor Who, and I remember as a young child hiding behind the sofa watching this. But of course, on BritBox, you've got the very first and second series on there. You know, with when they when they first go to their first trip and then when they first come across the Daleks later on. And it's it's quite funny watching it now because to think that kids used to be frightened in those days and it's just, you know, you've got these cardboard sets or even paper sets, you know, and it's it's terrible. But there is, there is a link with Hancock, isn't there? Because there is a story in Cliff Goodwin's book that he was having a boozy night with Terry Notion, the Doctor Who writer, and they started talking about science fiction and monsters and robots and stuff and they uh while they were both inebriated they developed this idea of uh of, of a robot with i think it said it had a sucker on the front and and uh shaped like a cone and uh, when the daleks came along apparently hancock looked at the telly and said nations nations stolen my my robots stolen these blooming robots according to cliff goodwin um hancock came the credit for inventing the daleks so um whether it's true or not, we haven't a clue, but it makes a lovely it's little It's a lovely story. anecdote, but it's probably a <laughs> yeah. Well, I have got a, uh, a link to Doctor Who directly mm. to 12 Angry Men, if you're interested in it. Ah. Yes. Go on in. I think the word we use is segue at this point, isn't oh, it? Nice little this segue. Is, this is a very smooth segue. We're getting so smooth <laughs> now in the third series. So uh, Leonard Sachs plays a defending counsel in 12 Angry Men. 
his son Robin yes. Sachs was actually in is an actor as well and was in Torchwood, which is a spin-off to Doctor Who. Ah, ah right. And Leonard Sachs was in Arc of Infinity in nineteen eighty three, played President Barossa of the Time Lords. One of the many actors who played it. He was in lots of things. The creature must be expelled immediately if we are to avert disaster. Without knowing its purpose here. Its presence here must be our first concern. Antimatter cannot coexist in harmony in our universe. Lord President, this creature is here now because it bonded with me. To do so, it needed something very special. I think the old boy who played the farmer was also in a Doctor Who. In uh, played a retired astronaut in The Seeds of Death with Patrick Troughton some really? years ago. It's one of the only other things he's... He's done a few things. The only other thing I've seen of his work. So that's quite nice. I thought of you immediately, John, when I learned that. Quite a few connections then. Yes, yeah. a few. Mm. Mm. And, of course, Terry Nation was one of the writers for Hancock's 1963 series as well. Um, yeah. Certainly yeah. Uh, rewrote uh, Ray Wybird's original The Assistant script into a, you know, a new style that Hancock was after. And uh, so there, there's another connection with, with Terry Nation. Yeah. We've got some uh, bit of news there, Martin, for, for the podcast. Yeah, we have, but we have got some news. Yes, so for listeners who aren't aware... Hancock's first television series was not for the BBC. Hancock's Half Hour was the second series that he did on on television. His first series was for the very fledgling ATV television channel. It had only been on the air for a few months. And his first series was called The Tony Hancock Show. It was a Jack Harlton production. It was a variety show, completely different from Hancock's Half Hour, showcase Hancock's visual comedy, written by... Eric Sykes, with the first two episodes, also written by Larry Stevens. The Tony Hancock Appreciation Society have been working with Kaleidoscope and the Hancock family to obtain copies of some original films. And these have been released by Kaleidoscope, released in mid-February. And it's got all six episodes from the first series. Unfortunately, none of the second series survives. But it really is worthwhile having a a look at this because it really does show Tony in a completely different light. Uh, and Hancock was also in a um, long-running stage show at the time when he did a sketch called Send the Relief or the Lighthouse Keeper sketch, depending on um, which book you read. And a copy of that is also included on the DVD. It did appear in Sky Arts documentary uh, a year or so back. So that copy was the original film. And then we as the Hancock Society had an all, uh, sorry, the film was mute. And then the Hancock Society found a co- an audio copy of the sketch in Australia. And for the Sky Arts documentary, they married the mute film with the soundtrack. So it's got sound for the very first time. So this, again, is a, the very first time that's been released. So a fantastic uh, new release. It's available from uh, Kaleidoscope uh, website, which is called TV Brain at the moment, price £24 for the, uh, for the DVD. And I believe it is scheduled to be out on Amazon on the 1st of May. So at the moment, exclusively through Kaleidoscope and then from um, or through Amazon from the 1st of May. And the website is www.tvbrain.info. And there's a little shop there and you'll find it fairly high up in the list of recent items in the shop. Excellent. Thank you, John. And it's also worth mentioning that there's a new audio download out this week. It's called Gorton and Simpson, The Collection. It features all six of the Gorton and Simpson half hours that uh, were remade for radio, uh, which includes Impasse, as we mentioned earlier. It's uh, an audio download. It includes I Did It My Way by Gorton and Simpson, which is a three-hour programme. 
And it has also got very nearly an arm for the Gorton and Simpson story on there as well. So it, in all, it comes in at about seven and a half, eight hours in total material. So uh, well worth getting that download. And I can't remember if we mentioned it on the last podcast, but already available is Hancock's Half Hour Selected TV Episodes, which again has got lots of TV episodes, some previously unreleased and a lot of additional bonus material uh, that came out in January. So lots and lots out there for, for Hancock fans at the moment. Always good to get some new releases. Yeah, it's incredible how this stuff keeps coming out, isn't it? You know, here we are you know, 60 or 70 years after the event and we're having downloads and DVDs and goodness knows what else. You know, we've got this podcast and people listening all over the world. We've, we've got the programs on BBC Sounds and, you know, it's just, it's, it's just incredible, really, isn't it? <laughs> when you stop to think about it, it's just marvellous. Yeah. The ease of access is so different mm. to the mm. early days of the society in the early yeah. 80s, yeah. isn't it? When yeah. virtually nothing was available, mm. bar a handful of cassettes. Mm. And, and, you know, if you go back to the mid-70s, you know, mid it was 76 when the society was formed. I mean, mm. there were just a few, a few records, mm. almost no complete half hours were out there. They were little extracts and bits and pieces. And in fact, the BBC mm. didn't have that many in their mm. archive either. A lot of the material that's now... Uh, available that you can go and purchase has come from either off-air recordings made by members of the public that have found their way back to either us as a society or the BBC or there were BBC transcription service recordings that the BBC made for overseas broadcast sent them overseas to various countries um, Australia being one where there's been quite a few found I believe and that's how uh, so many of the shows that have survived have have been recovered and are now available for us all to, to enjoy on all these CD and DVD box sets, which, as you say, Tim, is so different from how it was in the, the mid 70s when there was so little out there. Exactly, yeah. And I, I've recently been, I think Tim obtained them on for the Society, but I've got about 15 uh, old BBC TS master tapes of, of episodes. No, none lost episodes, but uh, all these master tapes that I'm. Uh, got up in my attic so I've been recording into the computer for um, posterity's sake so we've got a, a little digital copy of it and it's just quite a nice item might make a nice display item or something but uh, you know that's uh, that's quite nice these are radio episodes no John radio episodes on reel to reel tape at seven and a half inches per second and I'm playing them back on an old Revox that was uh, formerly in a BBC studio back in the 1990s but no longer no, it sounds good and um, just as <laughs> a for any listener who happens to have in a cupboard somewhere or up in their loft, any reel-to-reel tapes, or indeed any cassettes made from reel-to-reel tapes, we are always very interested in having a listen. Because even if there are no lost episodes, there are loads of episodes where we've only got the transcription services edited version. And geeks as we are, we do like that additional 10, 15 seconds of material to make a complete episode up. So we'd love to have a listen if you've got any tapes. Well, in some cases, as much as three minutes. And, you know, there's, there's an awful lot you can fit into three minutes, isn't there? So, Indeed. Yeah, some yeah. of the extended ones, are, uh, well, extended, original length ones are considerably yeah. longer than what survives. Exactamundo. Got any uh, tweets and things like that? We've had lots of tweets, people sort of re-listening, which is great. And we've had some really good listening figures over the last few months, even when we were off. I had an email from my dad, if that counts, saying how much he enjoyed it. <laughs> That certainly counts. Excellent. That's good. Five-star review. I think so. Yeah. yeah. No, we just had you know, lots of comments on Twitter saying how much people are enjoying him. And, uh, you know, a few little... Um, I think there's a bit of a to-do about the, the cover of the 
box set that's available for that TV episodes. How it doesn't look like Hancock on the front, or it isn't Hancock? I think it's Alfred Molina. It's Alfred Molina. Yeah. I did see your reply on that. Yeah. I, I hadn't even crossed my mind before. And when I stared at it, I did realise actually, yeah, it's not not him, is it? It's it's a terrible cover, isn't it? Really, it's uh, it's it uh, meant to be a sort of a stylized illustration, oh. but it's not that great. Although there is another box set which has an image from the lift, I think, on the front cover. Is that the yeah, HMV which one? Is when they re-released it, and that's the HMV. Yeah, the one. HMV. Yeah, I haven't got that myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I picked up a few LPs from charity shops. Um, Hancock's off hour. I'm, I'm hoping to get a record player. You should buy the them for me. James, we, we've got loads to sell. It's 50 p, 50p, 50p, Tim. <laughs> a friend of mine picked up five or six from a charity shop and gave them mm. to me a couple of months ago. And I was like, ah, lovely. Thank you. And I had them all. But the uh, mm. the ones he had had better cardboard sleeves. The ones I had were a little bit on the tatty side. So uh, that makes a nice replacement. Yeah, these ones are actually impeccable, impeccable yes, condition. That's, well, that's uh, good. From a Hancock fan who never played them from the sounds of it. <laughs> I think so. Mm. Yeah. It is amazing what turns up in a charity shop. And it's great, all the information that's on there. You can actually read them, the mm. stories about it. There's just so much more detail than it would be if you're picking up a CD or yeah. downloading something. It's fascinating. Yeah. What I really like about a lot of the Hancock records is, is Gordon Simpson's sleeve notes mm. that they wrote. Mm. I mean, they are so incredibly funny. Such, such clever writers. Well, yeah, I was looking at the sleeve notes for 12 Angry Men. And of course, it was released in 76, just after Sid had died because they reference that they're both in that green waiting green room in the sky, in the wings or whatever it is. Uh, so that, yeah, so I suppose that maybe the surge in popularity following Sid's death caused them to reevaluate and release some stuff. Who knows? Interesting, though. Well, it is interesting, because they did um, release the sort of the radio extracts, Unique Hancock in 73, which was itself a cut-down version of a radio show. And then this one in the, so the lift and twelve angry men, which came out in seventy six, that was the first BBC release of a full Hancock's half hour soundtrack, or Hancock in the, in the case of the lift. So it was really interesting that the very first release by the BBC of a soundtrack wasn't a radio episode, but was two television episodes, which is it seems a a strange first choice for a, a full album. But I'm very pleased they did. I think they. Because they, in those days, they didn't own the rights, did they, to all this stuff? And I wonder whether there was mm. a rights issue with, with with some of it. Oh, well, it's quite possible. To, it's quite possible because a lot of the early releases didn't have the music on. Yes, well, they bought the rights exclusively. There, I was reading. I think it was in Fisher that Hancock's agent, I think at that time, was Billy Marsh. And this must have been round about mid 60s or something years after hancock's half hour finished and the bbc approached him to buy the rights of the radio series and he agreed an enormous amount of money that really surprised hancock because hancock said well no one wants to listen to these um, but the bbc sort of wanted it for the archive really in those days the idea of bbc4 extra and bbc sounds hadn't even been thought about so that that's so they they got the rights and that's why the bbc are able to uh, play the radio shows over and over again without costing them anything. It's, it's free for them. Whereas television series, of course, they don't own the rights to. So the different considerations arise, as they say. Mm. But, uh, yeah, interesting. We, we had a tweet from a guy called John Mulholland, and he was asking a question about the, the number of tracks, uh, pop music, for want of a better word, that sampled bits of Hancock. And I think Martin mm. is probably the expert on this, but 
on on the back of this tweet from John Mulholland, we we had a, a reply from our very good friend Julian Dutton, and uh, I don't think a podcast ever goes by without us mentioning Julian. He's a he's a fantastic Hancock fan and so knowledgeable about various things. He's like the fifth Beatle, isn't he? He is. Actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he'll he listen to this. He'll like that. Yes. Yeah. But what he said was that George Michael was a friend of his flatmate. And George Michael used to go round to Julian's flat and Julian would play him LPs of Hancock, including the radio ham. And so I said, does that mean you're responsible for the, for the sample on the George Michael record? And he said, quite possibly. So it, it might be that uh, Julian influenced George Michael to put that little bit in. For, for listeners who are not aware of it, in George Michael's record, Too Funky, Right at the very end of the record, which is probably cut off when it's played on the radio at all, but right at the very end, you, you hear his landlady in the, the radio ham, and I think it's a bit where she's complaining about the noise or whatever, but you just hear a few words of, of her saying that at the end. You're such a, you're such a... But there are other records that sampled Hancock, weren't there, Martin? Didn't I think? Didn't you write something about it in the missing page once? I think. Yeah, I mean, if if you go back to the the missing page, there was a a series of articles on on all of the Hancock releases. And if you go to the Society website, there's a commercial releases section that covers all of the the, the different samples that we're aware of. And yes. if any listener knows of one or, or more that uh, that isn't on our website, then um, please uh, please do get in touch. But there were things like, um, that I believe it was a, a band called the Dogs de Moor. They had a sample on that one. The actual track is called Wait Until I'm Dead and includes a little extract from the special recording that Hancock did for the pieces of Hancock Pie recording. That's all edited into the programme. Well, there it is. Could have happened to anybody. Anyway, I'd just like to say thank you for buying the record. And there are certainly more. There's, there's, there's quite a few out there. And just to add, the commercial releases section on the website is available to non-members as well. It's not. It's not in the members area. Yes, it is. It's available to. It's available to everybody. So any listener can go in and have a look at that. Indeed, they can. Yeah, but recommended to be a member, though, right? Rec- well, yes, oh, it's to entice them in. Yeah, yeah. We would yeah. definitely recommend that. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, over the years, there have been, you know, a couple of songs that have been dedicated to, uh, to Tony. Mm. Uh, so you've got Harvey Andrews did a homage with a song called Man with the, with the Homburg Hat. And just going through the, um, uh, there's Bebop Deluxe did a song called Modern Music. And Pete, what's his name? Pete Doherty, yeah. Pete Doherty, yeah. And he did... Um, we discussed that, didn't we? Lady did it for backwards. The, that's the Libertines, wasn't it? So the, the Bebop Deluxe one is uh, a segue of extracts from the radio, which have got John Peel, Tony Hancock and a weather forecast. And the extracts are from a Sunday afternoon at home and Tony saying, stone me. And Sid saying, there's one every week. There always has been. And there's nothing we can do about it. For a few hours. As you say, George Michael's too funky. And I've got a feeling there was a single came out and I can't remember who did that. 
Well, there's uh, there's Al Stewart's The Year of the Cat, the original lyrics of which were about Tony, but they he changed the lyrics, and I don't think we know what the lyrics were other than a couple of lines. But I'm sure that there's a fair few others, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. Oh, yes. So Mr. Homburg Hat by Harvey Andrews, and that was the other one, Richard Digence. And that was, a, a, it, the song was actually called Tony Hancock. Phil Collins, Something Happened on the Way to Heaven, has got Hancock on the front cover of the single. And here we go, and I've forgotten this was it. It's a band called Small Town Parade, and the song The Sunday Way of Life features an extract from A Sunday Afternoon at Home. Just amazing how much it all bleeds into popular culture, doesn't it? Yeah. It just shows you the, the influence, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and that was 1991. So, you know, that's um, a long time after Hancock's Half Hour was on the radio. It's, it's a, you know, yeah. relatively recent. So as you can see, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of times that Hancock's been sampled, and I'm sure we've only really scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. Oh, I dare say. Email in if you've got any more. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I have a, a, a Twitter poll of the uh, of all the ones to, to gather a list together, perhaps, at some point. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd had a, a Facebook message from a, a chap uh, called Andrew Peel a while ago with a, a few things he mentioned about the um, the show and think questions he had for the podcast and things like that. And one thing he wrote was that the 12 Angry Men episode uh, is one of his all-time favourite episodes, one he remembers from his first introduction to the show in the mid-80s from repeats that his dad taped on telly, much like mine. Uh, and there's a definite dramatic quality to it that raises it above the standard sitcom episode and that um, old Austin Trevor is superb as the judge. Interestingly, on the Paul Merton commentary on the DVD with Alan and Ray, they mentioned that because there were only two sets in the episode, that then gave them the ability to have much larger sets than usual, which must have contributed to the sort of dramatic quality overall. Uh, it's uh, one that he just thinks is, is great, and Hancock's performance is great. And it, that, that element of uh, similarities to the train journey, a group of characters trapped in a train carriage or a jury room, but the uh, the twelve angry men one works slightly better than the train journey in his view, but uh, then again he's not seen the twelve angry men films, so it's hard mm. to judge. Mm. Because uh, when we talked about the lift a couple of podcasts ago in the last series, I think we referred to it as being probably the, one of the earliest examples of what is now known as a trapped comedy, where where the cast are trapped or someone. And I think this this guy Andrew Pill, and I think also Josephine Albert, who's in Maryland tweeted about this saying that actually this episode 12 angry men is is a trapped episode because they're trapped in a jury room Mm -hmm. i mean it's an interesting point i i think myself i i I think the lift is more of a trap than the jury room and in and in the jury room there are substantial scenes outside of the jury room as well as Mm. um whereas in the lift you've only got you've got the bit at the beginning when they're waiting to get in and you've got a bit at the end when they come out and most of the episode is actually stuck in the lift but uh, but having having said that yeah i mean it's a fair point and of course on radio a bit earlier you had sunday afternoon at home which was a, a trap comedy as well by mm. any description so well, quite a, quite a few of them yeah yeah quite a few of them are i mean even like very the third episode the idol they're trapped indoors because of all these screaming pickle factory girls who want to rip off t- tony's clothes so that's uh, a theme they came back to often it obviously worked quite well dramatically yeah yeah can i just say at the start i mean before we actually talk about this episode, what a fantastic series the whole series in. I think in your introduction, mm. John, you described it as the, did you say the sublime fifth series? 
I mean, it's abs- when you look at the yeah. episodes in it, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Exactly. It's just, um, it, it, it must, you know, I know we talk a lot about this seventh series when it was just Hancock and the blood donor and the lift and all that sort of stuff and, and how absolutely wonderful that was. But this one, you know, with 12 Angry Men and Lord Byron and two murderers and that, uh, it's just uh, absolutely fantastic quality. It, it is. I mean, I mean it's, it's quality all the way through. Yeah. And as you, yeah. yeah the, economy, the economy drive in there. The economy drive, yeah. I love the economy drive. All of these are quoted as favourites by people, aren't they? When you ask them what their favourite episode yeah. is, you know, nine out, you know, obviously a lot of people say The Blood Donor, The Bowman's, The Radio Ham, understandably, but a lot of other people quote episodes out of this one. Yeah. And, of course, you've got the crews in this series, which is the, uh, you know, features... Hattie as well, which is you know a lovely yeah. the only surviving one with Hattie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly is because she was in all of the I think it was the second or third TV series. She was in every single episode, playing you know similar roles in in each one, but a different mm. character. Uh, sadly, yeah. none of that show exists because it went out live, and you know it's before video players. If only I had a time machine and a and a, a video player, I could a video recorder, and I could go back and uh, tape them all, but. Maybe oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> but but interestingly, thinking about the the trapped comment that you mentioned earlier, the series is the Twelve Angry Men's the fourth episode, and the fifth episode is the train yes. journey. Yeah. So it was mm. two two weeks with a as you say with a, a sort of a trapped theme or a you know a claustrophobic theme because you know you can't escape from the from the train or the or the coach in in the train journey the same as they can't escape from the jury room in Twelve Angry mm. Men. So I suppose we'll move on to our main subject of 12 Angry Men. Uh, in preparation for this, actually, I watched the uh, the Henry Fonda movie. I had seen it before, but... I thought he was going to say you watched the episode, John. I watched the episode as well a few times, <laughs> just a few times, uh, over, the, over the last few days. But the the movie itself that, that it's based upon, I can just imagine Gordon Simpson going to see, a, presumably, yeah. a, a rerun of it, because it was released a couple of years before the TV episode. It's a, such a claustrophobic film. Uh, here's what I think happened. The old man heard the fight between the boy and his father a few hours earlier. Then when he's lying in his bed, he heard a body hit the floor in the boy's apartment, heard the woman scream from across the street, got to his front door as fast as he could, heard somebody racing down the stairs, and assumed it was the boy. I think that's possible. Assume? What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. For this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. You don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? Um, There's very little of the trial in that film. It literally opens with them going to deliberate. You know, the the Hancock episode has about 10 minutes in the courtroom just of a bit of of business uh, and argumentativeness and Tony getting on everyone's wig. But um, the the movie is really a good quality piece of drama. I thoroughly enjoyed that. You can really see the similarities in there, can't you, with the um, Hancock's 12 Angry Men and the, the actual film when they sort of separate off in the movie yeah and they have sort of one-on-one conversations and then Tony's conversation with the farmer about his wife being a city girl yeah at the oh. window almost exactly the same I love that yeah. conversation who's uh, who's looking after the farm while you're away then my wife 
Oh, a country girl. No, she's a Londoner. Oh, a Londoner, eh? And suppose she knows much about farms, then? No, she doesn't. Hmm. expect it'll be a right mess when you get back. <laughs> Dead chickens all over the place. <laughs> Cattle lying on the backs with the legs sticking up in the air. Pigs grazing. Dead chickens all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Dead cows. Elf with the legs in the air. <laughs> yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I can just imagine they must have gone to see it and thought, Do you know, I can imagine how Tony and Sid would react in this because I, I kind of feel that Galton Simpson's characters, you know, I imagine one of them as Tony and the other as Sid coming up with these these lines of the two characters talking. I don't know which. I, I imagine Ray as, as Sid and uh, Alan as more the Tony type character, but you know, that's just me speculating. But it's uh, it's very much works as a pastiche wonderfully. And they, they open with that, that lovely line of John Harrison Peabody, who is the accused. Who doesn't say a word. <laughs> doesn't he, he almost never says no. a word in Hancock. He's in about 11 or 12 episodes. Is he? Yes, chap called <laughs> Herbert Nelson. But he he's got a, such a nice face. Well, it, <laughs> that's the line. But if you look, he's got a great scar on one yeah. cheek <laughs> and a sort of spiff moustache. <laughs> and he looks like, he, you know, you wouldn't want to meet him down a dark alley. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> As well, what a wonderful name. John Harrison Peabody. I... They did have a, a love of names because the the mm. prosecuting counsel is Mr. Spooner. There's often a Mr. Spooner, and I think that's Dennis Spooner, the uh, comedy writer that they were friends with, who I think was part of Associated London Scripts. Ah, right, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> yeah, because they, they often, as you say, picked up names. It's like there was often a character called Fred, which was reference to uh, Freddie Ross, Freddie Ross Hancock, yeah. who Hancock called Fred, and she was obviously, obviously on the scene a lot, and... So Hancock, um, Gordon Simpson wrote a lot of when they needed a fairly odd character who didn't say much at all, if anything, then it was often referred to as Fred. And you often hear that when you're listening to the radio episodes. Mm, you do. So certain ones that come up regularly. Mm. I love the uh, the police inspector, Robert Dorning, in this. I mean, he's he's another regular, isn't he? He was in, I think oh, yeah. it was 18 episodes of, of TV. Inspe- inspector Jones he played, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Who uh, the witnesses said that they look the policemen looked like teddy boys. That was that was the line, wasn't it? Fantastic. That's right. Why did he say he ran away? He said we looked like teddy boys. He thought we were yes, teddy boys. Yeah. That's just a great line, isn't it? You were wearing plain clothes at the time, were you not? Quite right, sir. Now, Inspector Jones, what reason did the prisoner give for running away when you arrived? He said he thought we were teddy boys. <laughs> And Tony's reaction to that. Did you hear that? He said he thought they were Teddy Boys. That's a smack in the eye. There's some marvellous lines all through this, mm. isn't it? It's a fantastic script. It is. I love Tony's reaction to that, though, when he tells the judge he was, uh, he mm. must have been laughing, and the judge says he wasn't. And of course, Covered. he says, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Cover, cover your mouth. Pull the wig round. Pardon your honour, just I thought it was rather amusing, that's all. Just slipped out. I couldn't help it. I mean, you had a little giggle yourself. I did not have a little giggle. Yes, you did. I saw you. <laughs> Brought the end of your wig round to cover your mouth up. Because that, that little piece I like as well, where Hancock and Sid are sitting in the jury together and he's standing up saying, my, my friend said, I, you can't talk to me like this. You know, that little sequence. You're not putting up for that. You're the foreman of the jury. He shouldn't make you look at Charlie in front of everybody. Go on, tell him. I bet you remind you of me, lad. <laughs> But I am the foreman of the jury, and as such, you shouldn't make me look at Charlie in front of everybody. 
Mr. Foreman, I would remind you that I'm the judge in this courtroom, and as such, I can replace you with somebody I regard as more competent. <laughs> Tell him he can't talk to you like that. My friend says you can't talk to me like that. It's a fantastic sequence, and uh, I read somewhere that um, that was an example of Gorton and Simpson using things that they've heard in, in real life and put them yep. into the script. Because um, Sid James, when they were recording TV shows, would often whisper in Tony's ear, tell Duncan, in other words, the producer, to get, to, uh, get a shot on this or get a close-up on this. And Hancock would go up to Duncan and say, Duncan, I think we ought to do a close-up on this. Although Sid was the second banana, as they say, he was the one that had all the experience in the film studios. So Sid was watching the monitors all the time and uh, he would sidle up to Tony. It matters to him, ask him uh, if, if, uh, if he doesn't think that you should have a close-up after that uh, you know, such and such a line. So Tony would go to the, uh, you know, go to the boom and say, oh, Duncan, is, what do you think, what do you mean about a close-up after? And Duncan said, yeah, it could be, yeah, fine. Tony would never have thought of that. But Sid used to sort of be his, his, his guardian, if you like. But Duncan always, Duncan always knew who, yeah, where, where the idea came. He bloody Sid James, at it again down there. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the only person who knew a lot about the visual aspect of things like that was Sid James, who did umpteen films. And Sid used to tell us what take one meant on films and things like that. Tony became enamoured with the mechanics uh, and with the use of television as a medium. Uh, and he started suddenly suggesting various shots to me because he would like... He became enamoured with the way you could use it. And that meant using his face, which he never had to do before. The voice was still the same, but he used to think, if you did things a certain way, I could make this funny without really doing very much. And Duncan got to understand what was happening, that, that Sid was putting these things in his ear all the time. And it was, it was very well known on the set. That, yeah. uh, that Sid was influencing all this because Sid was the one in the TV series who had the experience of filming yeah. and, and knew how these things worked. He probably had more experience than Duncan Wood himself and indeed Hancock. So uh, Gordon Simpson put that bit in the script with him jumping up saying, my friend says this and my friend says that. It was a, it was a little yeah. ref reference to that real-life thing. Exactly, and I think in the comment because there's a commentary, isn't there, on the DVD with with Ray and Alan? I couldn't get mine to work when I tried it, but no, uh, yeah, you not? Yeah. No, I was. I, I've got an MP3 of it. I was just playing it on my phone while mm. I wandered around doing the dishes earlier. Mm. And I think there's also something from their actual life. There was a friend of theirs who won a council. There was a couple of them, and he, one of them would always say, well, "Yeah, tell him, tell him this, tell him that." That routine about you, you can't talk to him like yeah. that, you know. Got that from a friend of uh, ours uh, who was on Mitchum Council, uh -huh. and he, and that used to take place with two guys. Oh, really? And get up and say, "Go on, you tell him, you tell him." <laughs> I thought it was so funny, yes. so we had to use it. Yeah. <laughs> so they thought it was so funny they had to use it in a script somewhere. So it could mm. be, it could be, it mm. came from a little bit of A and a little bit of Column B there, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. trying to find out whether, because obviously Sid's portrayed as the criminal character. Mm. Whether he would, if he did have a criminal record, fictional criminal record, whether he'd actually be allowed to be a juror. That's an interesting point. It's a bit of a grey area. Well, indeed, yeah. I I expect that's something where you have to suspend your disbelief. But I think I think in the TV series he'd never actually been in prison, whereas in the radio series his character had. 
Mm. Um, but that's true. You could argue that although he was a dodgy, I think one of the differences between the TV and the radio is that he wasn't so much of a hard criminal by the time the TV came along. I mean, he started off in the radio series being an out-and-out crook, and then he morphed into this friend of Hancock. And particularly in the TV, although he was dodgy, he, he'd never actually been in prison or anything. Um, Did he not win the lawyer in the? Is that or was that later on? Yeah. Oh no, he wasn't. Oh, right, yes, he was. Yes, yes, because Hancock was defending the yeah. uh, defending him, wasn't he? He was laying on the bed, wasn't he? Yes, of course. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Mind you, that that wasn't a prison. That was that was a police station cell. So he could have been sleeping off a drink. Or oh, and he actually got he got off as well, didn't he? And he so, uh, yeah. yeah, Sid got off because it was Hancock that was convicted in that episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> breaking up big boulders into little rocks. So Hancock yeah. couldn't have been a juror yeah. in this one after all. No. no. <laughs> Let alone the foreman. In some of the scripts for the Lost TV shows, there's one, one I think, is it The Russian Prince? He says, or one of the early TV scripts, I can't remember. He's, you know, he says... Uh, Come on, I thought you'd gone straight. You know, he's like, I've, you know, I've been going straight, straight ever since I come out of uh, prison. Yeah, two and, days uh, ago. <laughs> two days ago. It doesn't last yeah, very long, needless to say. But it, that in the early series, he was more like in the radio show in the early TV series, and he became a bit more of Tony's housemate and just mm. slightly, yeah. you know, friend with dodgy contacts later uh, uh, in the show. Mm. So he had been in prison in the TV series, then, so uh, because of that episode. Yeah. I've seen in like the US or something, if you've served more than five years, you can't be a juror, which seems strange to me. I don't know what right. it's like here. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting point. Though, I don't know what the rules are. I've ne- never been on a jury. No, so I would kind of want to, though. 30 shillings a day. Well, you know, if you get more more than you do on the outside, then uh, yeah. yeah, 30 bob a day. <laughs> 30 um, bob a day. Away. <laughs> <laughs> I have no wish to serve on a jury whatsoever. I'd, I'd love to. No, it doesn't appeal to me either. I've managed to avoid it so far. Fortunately, your long string of criminal convictions means you'll never be on a jury, eh, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> and then now we know the reason. I thought Martin was making a pun there, mm. appeal. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, this this one as well. This was another one that was uh, remade by Galton and Simpson for ITV in the nineties, mm. um, in which you've got Sam Kelly in the Sid role in that one. Sam played the Hugh Lloyd role in the the version of the Lift, and I, I gave that a little watch as well. That was quite because of course you also had Gary Waldhorn in that, who was in the Vicar of Dibley, who sadly died quite recently, uh, who played the. Um, businessman type character who's like I happen to be a company director company director any advance on two not gillies oh this is ridiculous I'm a company director I'm losing a fortune while this goes on hello another privatised public utility another fat cat with his nose in the trough how can you put your personal gain above your duty as a citizen doesn't justice mean anything to you? Well, of course it does. The case against him is watertight. I don't see there's anything to discuss. There's loads to discuss. I reckon we've got seven or eight days of non-stop chat in front of us. And I also noticed in the very opening scene a very young Rob Brydon. Rob Brydon, yeah. He's in a small role, because mm. it was yeah. many years before fame hit him. This is stupid. He must be guilty. Well, I say he's not guilty. Of course he is. He is. In the original, he is. Alec Bregonzi played the man who's just got married. Yes. And what was really nice about that is that's a really nice speaking part for him. Well, that's very unusual, isn't it? Because often... Because most of the time he is in a non-speaking role in the the episodes. Or or he just says shush. Yeah, 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 that's right. He's a shusher in a missing page, and he's got odd lines, odd words here and there, and he's often standing in the background, like in the Bowman's, 
but for a walk-on, he has quite a decent little uh, sequence there, doesn't he? With a one-to-one with Hancock. It's quite a nice part in this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's his. I think it's his best part in any other. We've been locked in this confounded room for seven hours now. Seven hours. And what theories have you concocted? Twin brothers. Doubles. Blackouts. He was drugged by a gang of international crooks. He's the rightful heir to a European throne and they want him out of the way so they can put his uncle on. Well, it's quite possible. His father used to sell onions. I mean, there's just so many classic lines in there. The Magna Carta one is the one that always gets oh, thrown up, doesn't it? The most in... famous line. Uh, exactly. Fantastic yeah. line, isn't it? Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? <laughs> Brave Hungarian peasant girl who forced King John to sign the pledge at Runnymede and close the boozers at half past ten. That line was an afterthought. Did, did you? No, it was... Um, no, I didn't know that. When they got the script and they were rehearsing it or whatever, that particular speech goes on for a couple of minutes, but originally it only, it only went on for uh, however long, I don't know, half a minute or a minute or whatever. And Hancock said it, it, it seems to end abruptly here. And Duncan Wood agreed, said, yes, you're, you're just getting into your swing. And it stops and goes on to the next thing. And it suddenly stopped. And uh, we all looked at one another. And uh, he said, you know, I ought to do more there. And I quite agreed. He was just getting into his stride. So we rang up the writers and said, listen, can you write us a minute, another minute and a half of this speech, make it a big tour de force for him, which they did brilliantly, incidentally. And he learned that, uh, and he gave it the full, the full McCoy. I mean, that was really, the, this, is, this was the actor laddie holding the stage. And they, they knocked it out and sent it to them, and they put that in. And now it's one of the most famous Hancock speeches of all time. And it was literally an afterthought, just knocked up on the typewriter, you know, while rehearsals were actually going on. Fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. It is a fantastic night. And, Tim, is it right? We've got in our, um, our archive a press cutting from, from Microsoft for their encyclopedia in Carter or whatever mm. that actually yes. quotes that of the advert. So I'm presuming that must have been the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, it was certainly some years, yeah. Yeah, so it's another legacy piece. Certainly some years yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Because that whole speech goes on for quite a way, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a decent speech. And when, whenever Magna Carta comes up in the news, as it often does, particularly with... Uh, things that the government have done or haven't done over the last few years, people often quote Magna Carta, and you often find that Magna Carta is trending on Twitter or whatever, and then everyone piles in with a Hancock quote, you know, which is, which is great fun, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brave Hungarian peasant girl who forced King John to sign the pleasure at Runnymede and close the boozers at half past ten. Close the boozers at half past oh, ten. <laughs> yes. But then even the, the bit before that, it's like, you know, do you believe Doubting Thomas? Take the case of Doubting Thomas, who was sent to Coventry for looking through a keyhole at Lady Godiva. <laughs> Can anybody prove he was looking at her? Can anybody prove it was he who shouted out, Get your hair cut? Get your hair yeah. cut. <laughs> it's just one long stream of consciousness of getting quotes mm. and things slightly wrong. That kind mm. of like that, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it wash itself. You know, just getting stuff slightly wrong. Just a pomposity, but pricked because mm. you know he's an idiot uh, it just works wonderfully but it is the second speech like that because in in the episode it sort of comes in two halves in the jury room first of all mm. they they haven't been there very long they're all sitting there with their jackets and ties on 
and Hancock is making himself known as, as the chairman of the jury. And then later on, in another scene, time has passed on, all the jackets are off, the tires are half hanging off, they're all looking fed up and bedraggled. But in each of those scenes, Hancock makes a, a little speech. And mm. it's, it's in the first one, it's the one where he makes that fluff when he says, uh, wives and oh, personal lives. wives. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So um, he does that a couple of times, doesn't he? Yeah. Says wives accidentally. Mm, yeah. Are there any of us so pure, so free from sin in our own personal wives' lives? There's a big smile on his face as he recovers from it. Yeah. Isn't yeah. So, so there's that speech in the first sequence, and then there's the Magna Carta one in the other. But they're they're both speeches where he stands up mm. as foreman, addressing his colleagues in the jury, and they're both brilliant. Yeah, and I love the way he starts the first one and says, "Ladies and, ga- and gentlemen, we are gathered here to witness the." Oh no, wrong. Yes. Wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're gathered here today to witness the joining together. The, the, the That's a great little line. I mean, the whole section with the business in in the courtroom, and uh, as well, like you know, I'll give him a kick up the wig, and he does the little Will Hay sniff again, which you notice in a few of those shows. And then, you know, you've got the, the last 20 minutes of the show and then, the, for the most part, in the uh, jury room while they deliberate. And then Sid's like view of like, yeah, just cut, cut for a seven or under and pops the wee <laughs> gavel for a few pints. And- There's no hurry. We can take as long as we like. We shan't be disturbed. Our time is our own. Oh, good. Let's have a game of cards. <laughs> Put those things away. We're here to decide whether that poor wretch out there is innocent or guilty. Oh, let's cut for it and get off home. Anything under a seven, he's guilty. <laughs> Come on, let, let's not get off quick. Get down to the pub. Have a couple of pints at the Wigan Gavel. <laughs> that is not the attitude. We're here to ensure that justice is done. That's what we're being paid for. We're getting paid? Well, of course we're getting paid 30 shillings a day. And then he, when he discovers that they're being paid, he's, he's quite happy to keep it going. Yeah. And uh, that's just a lovely, you know, that's how Sid would react wonderfully, isn't it? That's a mm, great mm. little bit. It shows his callousness. And I love the way at the end, when everyone says it's not guilty, and Sid says, well... The paper isn't up yet. Not guilty. Oh. But, but he is guilty. We all agree he's guilty. Your friend says he's guilty. I don't care what he said. I've got another five days' work here. Not guilty. Oh, oh no. We cannot go through this again. No, no, no. no. Tell her what I'll do. If everybody chips in 30 bob to compensate me for my loss of earnings, I'll come in with you lot. Oh, it's just a, a brilliant idea. And uh, 30 bob is about what, one, one and a half pounds. If it's one pound 50 in 1959. 30 bob times 10. One pound 50 times 10 is uh, 15 quid. So that'd be about 370 quid in today's money, give or take, which is not quite as much as you might earn from a week's work, but shows inflation for you. Now, now what, what Sid says is that's more than I get in a day. So it's a, um, I think it's a daily rate. So the, the jury rate is 30 bob a day, and Sid says he gets less than that a day at work. I think inflation, inflation since Hancock time, normally works out around about 30 times. You normally multiply it by about 30. So if it was £1.50 a day they were getting in the jury, that, re- that probably works out about 45 quid a day today and which sounds it sounds about right because they, they don't give you a, it's mm. just an allowance but it'd be ludicrous for anyone to say they they are, i mean no way would would sit and less than that in a day i mean even even in days before minimum wage i think you'd get more than that <laughs> something tells me that sid wasn't employed i think he's more self-employed <laughs> than yeah <anything>. possibly <laughs> mm. 
lead pipes fortune made. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but I suppose <laughs> if there's 10 of them giving him 30 bob, it must add up to a pretty penny anyway. Yeah, I guess. yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's he's... Uh, yeah, he he's very much uh, all, all about making, you know, coming out on top smelling of roses, isn't he? Mm, mm. I love the way that Hancock sort of tries to make the um, the farmer guilty again, sort of going back to the farmer. Mm. Yes. Oh, that's charming, isn't it? A man's life or half a tub of King Edwards. Yes. <laughs> I can't stop here forever. I've got a farm to run. There's crops to get in. Well, that's charming, isn't it? You're prepared to send a man to jail for 15 years so that you can get your spuds in. <laughs> The equation of human kindness. Fifteen years in jug equals two ton of King Edwards. <laughs> Philip Ray, who plays the farmer in that, is pretty good. I think he's also in uh, Night to Remember as well. I think he plays a role in that. And he's apparently also in Frankenstein Created Woman. But the standout role and performance, I mean, it's a very short bit. But that, that woman who... Um... Guilty! 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 Bring back the cat! <laughs> Guilty! Guilty! Put him away. He's a menace. Send him away for as long as the law allows. Make an example of him. There's too much namby-pamby treatment of these thugs. Bring back the cat. That'll show them. I do it myself if you men haven't got the courage. Put him away. Guilty. Guilty. So much for the, so much for the gentler sex, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Lala Lloyd. No relation to Hugh Lloyd, as far as I can ascertain. Mm. She was in a few things like Steptoe, Only Fools and Horses as well, of course. Really? And um, in a 1990 episode of Poirot, so it seems. So, um, oh, okay. She, she's very good. Well, it's funny, but you should say Poirot because the guy who played the judge was the first Poirot on film. Oh, really? Austin Trevor. Austin Trevor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was the only episode of this Hancock he appeared in. But he, he was a bit like Sid James. He'd been in about 50-odd films. Um, by the time Hancock came along, he'd, he'd been in absolutely everything and uh, and was the first pro, yeah. Quite a few of the cast who play the jurors are ageing movie stars from the 20s and 30s. Mm. I mean, Kenneth Cove, who plays the old man, oh, well, you know, I always thought he was guilty, but uh, not guilty, um, played lots That's of silly That's a very good impression, John. Yeah, yeah, hey, the impressions again. <laughs> ding, ding. Well, really, I don't know. No, no, I'm not sure, but I always felt that he was guilty. He played a lot of silly-ass roles in the 20s, and he, he looked a bit like George Arliss, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, that's a good thought. Yes, yes, he does. Yeah. I've, I've never seen George Arliss. I've only ever seen the Hancock impression of him. Oh, you've never seen him? No, I, have seen, I, have seen fo- I have seen photos of him. It, uh, that, mm. Yeah, he's, he definitely can see the similarity. Oh, I see. I, I, there's a particular George Arliss film called Dr. Sin, and I, I quite like I used to visit the Dimchurch and Romney in my childhood holidays where it's set and um, Dr. Sin, the movie, was his final film role and uh, I, I watched that as a youth and so that's something that uh, I, I very much enjoy. It. Uh, yeah, he's quite good in that actually, playing a, a vicar who is actually a retired pirate who's hiding out and is actually a bit of a cutthroat. That's quite fun. But then you've got Leslie Perrins, whose final movie was The Haunted Strangler with Boris Karloff. He played uh, the business owner who, uh, who said, oh, there's a bookies runner down our way who looks just like you. It's not you, is it? There's a bookies runner down our way who looks exactly like you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It isn't you, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> He's very good in that role as well as the as the mm. almost the final person to give in and, and say guilty. 
after being browbeaten by Tony and Sid as they sort of work on them together, don't they? Because, you know, Sid's working on Alec while Tony's working on the farmer and it's both trying to wear them down and it sort of cuts between the two. I, I really like that. Uh, works beautifully, doesn't it? You married? Yes, I am. Mm. Then I hope she's patient. Three years a long time, innit? You'll leave. I love the sort of casual way that they go, right, 9-3, number one down. It's just like they're keeping score. Just like a football score, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Mario loses it and goes crazy. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I can't stand any longer. This room is driving me mad. Let me help. Let me help. I want to go on. Let me help. Please let me help. I go home to my mother. 7 3, I think. Yeah. 6 all. Yeah. <laughs> one, yeah, six or one retired hurt. Um, yeah, because I think um, this is interesting because you obviously you've got Mario for Britsy and you've got a very small role for Hugh Lloyd as as the usher because obviously it's an early episode for Hugh. Um, but apart from apart from um, Mario, Hugh, and, and Alec, you haven't got any of the normal East Team Repertory Company in this, and I think that gives the episode quite a different feel. Yes, and no. I mean, you've got. You've got William Kendall in there as the uh, grumpy um, sort of military type chap with uh, the balding head who he goes, ah, 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 The ah, man ah. is obviously guilty and I demand. Ah, ah, ah. Who's the foreman? You are. There we are then. Yes, but I can't sit ah, down. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> yes, but I can't. Ah, ah, ah. But I can't. Ah. And William Kendall was in, uh, he was in the tycoon as the owner of the bank. And he was also in, what was it I noted? Isn't he the general in The Train Journey? No, no, he's not. That's no. a different one. He is the very angry businessman who's taken his secretary, definitely his secretary, not a bit of Brassworks, out for lunch in The Photographer, who loses oh, his proverbial um, okay. uh, right, right. when right. Uh, Tony's yep. taking photos of him. So he's in a couple or, or three. He's not really a repertory player, though, is he? He, he? he appears in minor roles as opposed to an extra. I think when we're talking yeah. about the repertory company, we're talking more about extras, aren't we, really? But, uh, he was a semi-regular, I suppose, I'd say, yeah. William Kendall. He's, he was in a very good performance. And again, he, he was in all sorts of things, between George and the Dragon, Hugh and I, um, lots of shows of that era. The, the thing about the 12 Angry Men is you've actually got a decent part for a number of people there, haven't you? Because you've got 12 jurors, and not all of them, but a number of them whom have... Uh, well, they all, they all speak, actually, don't they, when you think about it? There aren't any extras on the jury, are there? No, they all have speaking parts. All, 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 of, them, all of them have a speaking part, yeah. So that's quite unusual for a Hancock, because normally you'd have, uh, have a small number of speaking parts and, and the others would be, you know, standing in the background or shushing or whatever, um, but not actually speaking. Sort of making up part of the crowd. And as you say, you haven't got that, because you, everybody there is playing a part has an actual it's almost like an ensemble comedy obviously Tony and Sid are the, the leads mm. Um, mm. but everyone's got a, a scene haven't they in this where they get a, a bit of a speech and they get to stand out like Lana Lloyd and her lewd, you know so much for the gentler sex uh, and her bit and, and they all get a moment where they get to lose their, their rag mm. and uh, mm. it's just very very well put together even the judge, Austin Trevor, gets his bit about, you know, it, it's my court. I've been a judge for so many years. I, I, I know what I can do and what I can't do and all that yeah. type of stuff. 
And then the lovely line, tell my wife I'm going to be late tonight. That's it, yes. Yeah. Oh, no. Why can't I have ordinary juries to do as I tell them like other judges? Why does it always have to be me? Pull it, man. Well, I am pulling it, but he won't budge. <laughs> You've got a bar of soap up there. <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, what a fast. Very well, show it to the rest of the jury, then try to get it off your finger. I remember listening to this when I was a youngster and really laughing out loud when um, Hancock does the impression of the uh, of the prosecutor. Yeah. I can't do it. Oh, John, yes. you, you better have <laughs> yes. a crack, John. No, I, I, I prefer to my honest old learned gentleman. <laughs> Give him a kip out the wig. I was very much impressed with my learned friend's appeal for this man's innocence. I was very much impressed with my learned appeal. I give him a kick up the wig. <laughs> And the thing is, because he really likes Leslie uh, Sachs's defending counsel. When the defending counsel has made his speech, Hancock mm. gives him a compliment. I can't remember the words he used, but he pays him a lovely compliment. You've got it? a very engaging personality. You'll That's go it. Far. You've got an engaging personality, my friend. You'll go far. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and then um, he, he says, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but you have no alternative but to find my client not guilty that he be discharged from this court a free man without a stain on his character. Very good. That was an excellent speech, my good man. You'll go far. But a very engaging personality. Oh, thank you very much. Right, next. Yes. Right, next. <laughs> May I be permitted to decide what's going to happen next in my courtroom? And he says something like, unless you want to take over. And Hancock says, yeah. well, if you've had enough, yeah, I'll well, go. I don't mind having a crack of it. If you want, he starts climbing <laughs> over the jury book. There's also a really good subplot in this, isn't it? With, with the ring getting stuck on his finger and yes. becoming lost and that sort of thing. That makes a really good subplot to, to the main story. Yeah. And it, it gives it that. Gives it that funny ending, doesn't it? When they when they all get uh, put away at the end, it's, a, it's always very similar to the blood Dome in a way. That circular storyline, it's sort of mm. yeah. back to that. And yeah. as well, I think he keeps coming up with different substances that might remove the ring. You've got a bit of butter up there, and I think he says high air yes. cream at one point, lard at another point. Or something. Can you send some soap into the jury room? Was another one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, a few different yes. things to try, and then it gets forgotten about for most of the episode until virtually right at the end when it turns out the ring is gone, when they give the uh, the guilty verdict. And uh, the fact that he persuades them all to say not guilty and then says, well, you know, let him let him break into people's houses, let him break him into your yes. house and other people's <laughs> shops and things. He says, oh, I couldn't have that on me conscious. No, I'd have to change my mind to guilty. <laughs> After he was so determined and so sure, he just one one little comment. He's like, no, no, I've changed my mind. I've just been thinking about what he said about... Letting him loose to rob people's shops <laughs> and other people's houses. I, I couldn't have that on my conscience. I'll have to change my mind. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, it's it's just there's no rhyme or reason to the logic mm. internal in Hancock's brain, the, the Hancock, the character, of course. But the, the whole thing with the ring then obviously comes back when they're at the end because it's then vanished. But where has it, could, could it have possibly gone, you know? And then they mm. they all end up in the dock. I wonder whose pocket that slipped into. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, I love the way they all stand there as the accused, and and, yeah. uh, and he's asked, "How do you plead?" And Hancock says, "It's all right. I'm, I'm the fallen. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you are charged with conspiring to steal a diamond ring valued at twenty thousand pounds. How do you plead? I'm the foreman. Guilty. Well, the prison sentence will be shorter than this jar. 
I want to get back to my pigs. What about my wife? It's not my fault. Who had the ring? Who's got it? I suppose as well, it's a slightly less realistic set because the dock in that must have been far larger than a, a dock generally would be because you don't tend to have 12 people tried at once for the same crime. No, no, it must have been, yeah. A little bit of artistic license there. But maybe they got off with a fine. So I thought it was quite interesting that this is, I think, the first series that was all recorded. And if you have a look at the script, it gives you a, an idea of the sort of the sequences or the segments that the show was recorded in. Um, and there are mm. the six sequences. So you've got the the long section in the in the courtroom to start with, which was nearly, as you, I think somebody said, nearly 10 minutes. And then you've got three sequences in the jury room, which presumably are the different time frames, because obviously they must have, as you say, loosened the ties, taken the jackets off. So you've got your three sequences, then the sequence back in the courtroom when, of course, they all come into the box to be accused and then the, the end caption. So it looks like it was done in six segments. And the longest one of those was, was the 10-minute was the opener in the court. Mm. I think the previous series episodes have been recorded. So this, I think we've been through this before, haven't we? So previously, they were able to record but not edit. And it was Duncan Wood's team who, having got this new video technology, which bears no relation to what we call video today, suddenly uh, went away and, and had a look at it and worked out a way of editing the tapes together which meant that they could record it in segments, as you rightly said. So, um, But that still meant that uh, the occasional fluff would be left in because if you was doing a scene and you made a mistake, you would have to go back to the beginning and start again. It wasn't stop-start as we know now. Yeah. So that's why the little fluff about wives and lives stays in because it was okay and it wasn't worth going back to the beginning of the segment and doing the whole thing again. Exactly. So so what they were able to do was have these different segments that enabled scene changes, enabled them to take their jackets and ties off, and then you, you'd end up with six segments that they knew then how to stitch together, which previously they, they couldn't stitch them together. Exactly. And the main reason for, for, for that and the way they couldn't go back is that they edited it on the fade to blacks because... In order to edit videotape, much like with reel-to-reel -reel tape, you had to physically cut yeah, the tape, yeah. take a bit out, and they'd have to edit it on the black because otherwise you might get a bit of picture roll because you had to edit it between pulses, I think. There was certain... It, the tape works in a different way. It's a helical scanning system, so it's not Oh, right. Yes, linear. I understand that, John. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> what? If, helical scan... That's why your head's on, yeah. on the wonk in your video player, or at least it was when you had one. <laughs> But on the on the two inch tape, um, obviously the pulses are long that would indicate stuff. But basically, the if you think of the tape as a, an oblong, it, the video recording is at an angle in several short segments across that tape, which is you know the whereas audio tape is one long thing all the way along the length of the tape, it's at an angle. So you had to kind of cut it in the right point, otherwise you'd get a picture roll. And you see that occasionally when um, there's flicks between cameras, the picture rolls ever so slightly which I think was just an artefact of the um, the technique and possibly of the telerecording process that, that is the only way by which these exist these days. But yeah, it's a little bit geeky and complicated, but basically they could edit on, edit on the fade to blacks and only there, really. Should we just advertise here that translations of that last section are available on request? <laughs> yeah. And if you listen to the commentary, someone will you mm. know actually explain what that is. Mm. And if you want more information on that, please contact John, not us. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Audio <laughs> at uk, And I may eventually answer your question. <laughs> <laughs>
but it is that wonderful circular ending and them all, all arguing, all hubbub bubbub in the in the dock with each other. Rhubarb rhubarb. It's just yeah, it's a it's a it's a great little episode. It kind of goes around really well and it's just such a fun pastiche and the fact that they're all getting tense and wound up and as you say the the ties pulled down the shirts ruffled up and they've all completely just lost it by the end of the episode haven't they they just had enough they just want out they don't care whether he's guilty or not they just want to go home back to the farm back to the farm for his, back to his yeah. dead chickens and cows and and back back to the um Alec Bragonza's wife who was a uh... What did he say? They've only been married a... Hot-blooded young 21-year-old. How long have you been married then? A week. A week, eh? Oh, well, I wouldn't worry about it. If she loves you, you know. Three years ain't so long for a hot-blooded young bride of 21. You're late. <laughs> no time at all for a 21-year-old or something. Yeah, fantastic. Because mm. I'm fairly sure Alec was a little bit older than 21. and I think he... Uh, I'm sure he was, He looks yeah. younger than he, he is yeah. in some scenes. But, mm. um, yeah, a, a fun episode and... Uh, beautifully put together again you know as is the way often with all of these you know it's hard to find a particularly bad one most of them are perfect some of them are very much above average and even the average ones are pretty damn good <laughs> i'd say this was above average so uh, if we move on to the scores what do you reckon you're going to give that one martin well i'm going to give this one a high score i think this is one of my favorite of the uh, favorite of the episodes it's such a strong episode a strong script lots and lots of quotes uh, as you say that uh, that you can remember that have become famous quotes magna carta being one of one of the best but the, the supporting cast the the storyline and, and the quality of the acting all the way through it's just an incredibly funny episode but with a lot more dramatic quality than perhaps you would get in in, in some of the others perhaps reflecting the the fact that it's this pastiche of uh, the 12 angry men film it for me it's one of the strongest episodes so it's uh, it's an eight for me well i i agree with everything martin has said i think it's it's an incredibly strong episode and i have to say that um you sometimes forget about some of the episodes you don't want for whatever reason you don't watch from for a while and you sort of put it in the back of your mind but when you watch it again you just realize how blooming good it is and as martin said it's um there's some quite dramatic acting in this for all the cast you've got a great selection of actors around the jury table the writing as ever is gorton simpson at their peak all the way through it and then the magna carta speech well that's just um that's just sublime it's just a superb episode from start to finish. I'm trying to wrap my brains about what sort of scores I gave to episodes before. I think I've, I've probably given the odd 10, but uh, I, I don't think I can give this less than a nine. And uh, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant from start to finish. Absolutely fantastic episode. And if anyone hasn't watch, watched it, I think I've said this before, go out and get the box set of the DVDs um, because it, it's worth every single penny. I think so. I I think similarly, I think this one's pretty damn good. I think I'd have to give this one a nine and a half. It's got a brilliant cast to it. The wonderful uh, speech, particularly that Magna Carta line, um, just stands out and uh, as one of the best lines they came up for him. I think that one and uh, did Rembrandt look like a musician? Of course she didn't. Uh, very much feature as my top two favourite quotes, I think. So... Uh, yeah, nine and a half because it's got a fantastic cast. They all bring something to it beautifully. Um, Sid and Tony are on top form. You know, the guest cast, they had some wonderful old 
school actors uh, in the roles of the judge and some of the jurors and um it just it just comes off beautifully and even roles like you say with uh, Hugh Lloyd having a very small role you know he doesn't bring much to it he sort of melts into the background but it's nice to see him in there amongst all the other regulars and the the, the one-offs that were cast in this particular episode and what a wonderful pastiche it is as well I mean there's, there's not much else to say apart from you know Unfortunately, I went last on this uh, scoring session, but I think everyone's pretty much summed up everything I would have said, so I won't repeat it. But it's just a thoroughly enjoyable episode, and you can watch it over and over again, and I have done pretty much my entire life, and I probably will continue to. Yeah. And what would you say is your very favourite moment from it, James? I still like quite at the start, when there's sort of the back and forth the judge and Tony getting a bit uppity with the uh, prosecutor. <laughs> that was my impression. Great. That's very good. That's yeah, very thank good. You. Well, yes, very good. Thank you very much. It was mm-hmm. worth it. It was. Giving us a run for the money, mm. like Tim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got to be a 10. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I can't justify giving it anything less, unfortunately. Or fortunately. That's brilliant. Or fortunately, yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, so I suppose that's an average of about 10 points, which is uh, definitely more than a body's full. So uh, that's uh, fantastic stuff. And uh, I think that's that's probably about it for this week. So uh, do you want to take it away with the scripty whipty Tim? Why not join the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society today? You can find us at tonyhancock.org.uk for all the information you need on how to join. For just £13 a year, you'll have access to the members area of our website and receive four magazines a year by email, packed with information on Tony, his shows and archive material. Members also get a digital-only bonus pages supplement every quarter, plus an occasional special edition focused on single theme. Or you can have printed copies of the missing page posted to your door for just £16 in the UK or £26 worldwide. And we're a friendly and welcoming bunch, so please do join. We have reunion events with archive displays and the occasional Zoom quiz night. Get in touch. We love questions and conundrums, compliments and feedback. To do so is very easy. Send your emails to podcast at tonyhancock.org.uk. Keep an eye on our Twitter accounts for all the latest news about the podcast and all things Tony Hancock. Just search on Twitter for East Team Lad. You can also search for Tony Hancock Appreciation Society and their other Twitter feed is very nearly an armful. In the next episode, we'll be reviewing that classic crime caper, Hancock in the Police. So that's very nearly an armful. So I'll say ta-ta. It's sayonara from me. Chickity snitch. And this is GLK London signing off for a quick cough and a drag. So guys, can you just send in that soap? There, just send in the soap, bar of soap, or a little bit of bit of lard might just do it. Get the ring off. <laughs> <laughs> this has been an official podcast of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Unfortunately, it was not written by Alan Simpson and Ray Gordon, whoever they are. The announcer was me, Robin Sebastian, currently appearing in the saloon bar of the Hendon Racket. What was that? Sorry, I went. I froze for a second. Then did I? Ah. Well, no, you just made a very casual little noise. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite enjoyable. I was going to say I was a teenage werewolf. Uh, I'm yeah. going to say if they're recording already, John. That's got to go in the podcast. <laughs> put that bit in the end. Yeah, <laughs> reminds me. I ne- I need to put my um 
start my recordings off. So uh, yeah, just press a couple of buttons, 